Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you have given to us the Lord Jesus. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have given us the church. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Lord, we thank you for making us those people. And Father, we thank you for giving us the scriptures, and we pray that you would use them this morning to make us people who believe, people who pray, people who remember. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So parents, you can listen in, but the introduction this morning is really for the kids. And um, I'm wondering if the kids are familiar with Silly Songs with Larry. I love Silly Songs with Larry. I think one of my favorites is the song about the pirates who don't do anything. Uh, if, kids, if your parents have not introduced you to the pirates who don't do anything, uh, you need to correct that this afternoon. So you can go listen to that song. And I actually have a challenge for you. Uh, but you have to listen to the sermon in order to be able to do, the, to do the challenge. So the chorus of the song says, We are the pirates who don't do anything. We just stay home and lie around. And if you ask us to do anything, we'll just tell you, we don't do anything. And so uh, my challenge is, I challenge uh, the, the, the budding poets, the budding young poets among us, to take the message of this text, Exodus chapter 17, and adapt it uh, to this, this poetic structure of this uh, silly song with Larry. And, you know, I think that this silly song, it has a point. I mean, it's almost as though these guys are saying, we're pirates, but we don't do anything that pirates do, okay? So, so listen to this verse. They say, I never hoist the mainstay, and I never swab the poop deck. And I never veer to starboard, because I never sail at all. And I've never walked the gangplank, and I've never owned a parrot, and I've never been to Boston in the fall. And so my challenge to you is to take Israel and what they're supposed to be and what they never do and adapt it to the lyrics of this song. Something, maybe something like this. You can, you can put it in terms of a Christian, too. Well, I never read the scriptures, and I never go to church, and I never go to small group, and I never pray at all. I never do learn wisdom, and I never walk by faith, and I've never been to Boston in the fall. <laughs> so uh, th this is a challenge for the kids, and uh, maybe somebody will send me a nice uh, set of lyrics uh, adapted to the message of Exodus 17. So you can't start, you know, toying with this during the sermon. You've got to pay attention because you've you got to have the content of the text in order to fill it into these lyrics. Uh, I would invite you to open to Exodus 17 this morning. And as you turn there, uh, here's another one for the kids, but also for the parents. Um, often, our family, on Sunday evening, uh, as we do family worship, we will um, think on and remember the sermon together. And um, sometimes, you know, people remember more than at other times. Um, so uh, here's an easy, I hope, easy-to-remember structure that applies both to the, the outline of the text and to the, the applications. So, so really, these are the applications. There are going to be two, two parts to this text, verses 1 through 7 
and then verses 8 through 14. And the two parts have the same three points of application. There are many points of application that you could, you could draw out of this text, but here are the three that I really want to hone in on this morning. Um, and, they're, and they're what I prayed. We need to believe. That's our first application. We need to pray, and we need to remember times two. Okay, so, uh, you know, when you, if, if parents, if you lead your kids to discuss uh, the sermon this evening, uh, hopefully... Uh, somebody will say, believe, pray, remember times two, and then maybe they can fill in some blanks on what, what we're talking about here. Uh, as we approach Exodus chapter 17, let me just briefly remind you of what we've seen to this point in the book of Exodus. You'll remember that the people of Israel were slaves to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians had subjected them to harsh labor, and, and they were groaning and crying out, under their burdens, and the Lord heard their cries, and he saw their difficulty, and he remembered, and he knew. And then he appears to Moses, and he sends Moses into Egypt, and, and, and against all expectation, mighty Pharaoh is brought to his knees, and the superpower of the earth, the Egyptians, are humbled to the dust, and God's people are liberated from their slavery. And they get out, and, they, and they're making their way out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord leads them into a trap because he's going to get glory over Pharaoh. And, and they're facing the Red Sea, and here comes Pharaoh with all of his glorious chariots and all of his dashing army. And the Lord splits the sea, and they walk through on dry ground. And then he closes the sea over the army of Pharaoh. And they sing the song of rejoicing in Exodus 15. They celebrate the Lord. They say, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has cast into the sea. And then, at the end of chapter 15, and the whole of 16, and now here in 17, we have these three episodes that deal first with water at the end of 15, and then with bread in 16, and now with water again in 17. Water, bread, water. And in all three of these episodes... Um, well, in the first two, the Lord is testing Israel. So the word testing occurs in all three of these. So in 1525, there he tested them. And then in 16.4, uh, that I may test them. Uh, but the tables turn here in this passage. In this passage, it's not the Lord testing Israel. It's Israel testing the Lord. And, and this is really bad for the people of Israel to do this. Also, another key word that links these passages, passage, these three episodes, is grumbling. So in 16, uh, 1524, the people grumbled against Moses. 162, the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. And then over and over again in chapter 16, 167, you grumble against us. 168, the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. 16.9, he has heard your grumbling. 16.11, I have heard the grumbling. And then here in 17.3, the people are going to, again, grumble against the Lord. So you have all this grumbling and testing going on that ties these passages together. And, and so this first point of application that we should believe, we're going to see how this works out in 17.1 and 2, uh, because we should learn by now, Israel should have learned by now, that when the Lord puts them in difficulty, he's giving them an opportunity 
to trust him. And I would, I would suggest that the same is true of your life. When the Lord puts you in a place of difficulty, he's giving you an opportunity to trust him. And we want to respond by believing. So look at 17, Exodus 17, verses 1 and 2. We read here, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. So they're going where the Lord is directing them to go. So this is not a mistake. It's not an accident. Uh, the universe is not spinning out of control. The Lord has them exactly where he wants them. So they, they're, they're moving out of the wilderness of sin, sin, and then they, in verse 1 there, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So I think the fact that they're, they're moving according to the commandment of the Lord and that there's no water tells us that the Lord is doing this on purpose. And, uh, you know, we, we are not sovereign and we are not omniscient, but we believe in a God who is sovereign, a God who is omniscient. So I think that we can be confident that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in are circumstances that the Lord wants us in because he's going to work these things for our good as he conforms us to the image of Christ. So let's just say, hypothetically, that the people of Israel had learned the lesson of the Exodus, a lesson that goes like this. No matter what circumstances you find yourselves in, the Lord is mighty enough, powerful enough to deliver you. Maybe the lesson of this place uh, when they arrive in the wilderness of Shur back in 1522 and the waters are bitter. Well, the Lord can sweeten the waters. Or chapter 16, there's nothing to eat. Well, the Lord can rain down bread from heaven. If they had learned these lessons, how are they going to respond? Nothing to drink? This is going to be awesome. We don't know what he's going to do, but he's going to provide. I think that would be a a believing response, but that's not the response. That's not the response that we see. Look at verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. And the word that's translated quarreled here, it's actually a word that, that implies that it's almost as though they're bringing a lawsuit against Moses. They're bringing a, a, a set of covenant charges against Moses. They're, they're entering into a dispute with him. Uh, other translations render it the people contended with Moses and said, give us water to drink. I mean, it's almost like they think he has water somewhere and he's holding out on them and now they're disputing with him to get the water that he owes them. But Moses understands. Moses understands that he's not the sovereign one and he's not the one that's setting the, the itinerary for the journey They've been journeying according to the commandment of the Lord in verse 1. So Moses understands that though they think he's the issue, he's not the issue. The Lord is the issue. So he says there in verse 2, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? And, and this, is, this is bringing us to a truth that I think we can apply to to every aspect of our lives. How we respond to the circumstances in which we find ourselves really reveals what we think of God. How we respond to the circumstances in which we find ourselves reveals what we think of God. So their response is not coming to Moses to say, call on the Lord for us, Moses. 
No. Their response, look down at 17.7. This is what they're saying. We get more, more info later in the passage. They tested the Lord at the end of 17.7 by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That's their attitude. Is the Lord among us or not? And the implication is, if he's among us, he'll give us this water that we deserve. Paul, as we read in 1 Corinthians 10, he urges the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10.6 not to desire evil as they did. Literally, he says, we must not be those who desire evil. We must not be those who desire evil. And then he goes on to say, nor grumble as some of them did. So how do, you, how do you be somebody who doesn't desire evil or grumble? Well, you have to be somebody who's trusting. You have to be somebody who's believing. We see their grumbling in verse 3. The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is just manifest unbelief. Because we've seen in the book of Exodus already really what the Lord is after. It is not the Lord's intention to bring those people out into the wilderness to kill them. Listen to Exodus chapter 3 verse 17. The Lord, when he calls Moses, he says, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. The Lord has promised I'm going to get you out of Egypt, and I'm going to take you to Canaan. These are promises that Israel should have meditated upon. Exodus 4, and 23, the Lord instructs Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. The Lord has not brought you into the wilderness to kill you, Israel. The Lord has brought you out of slavery for you to be his firstborn son, for you to take up a position of honor as his firstborn son among all the peoples of the earth. And he's not brought you out here to kill you. He's brought you out so that you can serve him. But all this they have forgotten. It is gone. God doesn't intend to kill them in the wilderness if you just look over at 19, 4 through 6, he's going to say to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. There's his summary of the way that he provided water in the wilderness and manna from heaven. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all peoples. I didn't bring you out into the wilderness to kill you. I brought you out here for you to be my treasured possession. And then he says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests serving him and a holy nation. That's why he brought them out. This is what they need to contemplate. This is what they need to believe when they face difficulty. This is what we need to believe when we face difficulty. We need to believe, Romans 8 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to believe he is working everything together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, 
he also glorified as though it's already done. So from Exodus 17, 1 through 3, I would urge you, when you encounter difficulty, believe, remember the promises that God has made. Now look at what Moses does in verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. You know that that word back up there in verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses. They're they're entering into this this, uh, lawsuit contention with him. And then their evidence against him in verse 3 is, you've brought us up out of Egypt to kill us. And so the judicial response is they're going to execute him. This is what Moses fears. Moses fears in verse 4 that they are going to visit capital punishment upon him and stone him with stones. And Moses responds the way that, that we want to respond when we encounter difficulty. You believe and then you pray. You call on the name of the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord provides. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, I think that the Lord's instructions in verse 5 correspond to and are meant to answer the grumbling of the people in verse 4. So uh, what I'm telling you is that I think in the literary structure of this text, Moses' prayer in verse 4 is at the center of this passage. How, does, how do the Lord's instructions in verse 5 correspond to the grumbling of the people? I would submit to you that these instructions are, are, are providing the people with things that they should remember, that they should recall. Believe, pray, remember. And so look at, look at verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, pass on. And the Hebrew word behind this is the word that is sometimes translated pass over. Pass over before them. And, and, and that language obviously makes us think of how uh, the Lord passed over the houses of the, Israel, of, of the Israelites on the night of the Passover, and then of how Israel passed over the Red Sea on dry ground. Well, why is that relevant? It's relevant for the same reason that the mention of the staff is relevant. Look at the, the verse goes on, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. What is the Lord doing? He's saying, Moses... You move before them and you take the staff in your hand in a way that will remind them of the plagues on Egypt and of the salvation that I accomplished for you. It's like the Lord is saying, I'm not going to save you from Egypt and then bring you out here in the wilderness and kill you. No, in fact, the way that I saved you in Egypt is the way that I'm going to sustain you in the wilderness. I think that's why this... Passover language is used here, and I think that's why Moses is instructed to take the staff with which he struck the Nile, because the way that God saved them from Egypt is the way that God is going to deliver them in the wilderness. That applies to us too, doesn't it? The way that God saved us in Christ by means of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the way that God is going to preserve us and grow us in faith. We were saved by faith because of what Christ did, and we're going to grow by faith because of what Christ did. Because what's going to happen is we're going to meditate 
on this enormous love that he has shown for us. And that is going to inspire us to go and love others the way that he loved us. So I, I think this reference to this, this call for Moses to pass on before the people and to take in his hand the staff with which he struck the Nile is meant to answer the grumbling as the Lord points back to the Exodus. And then what the Lord says next is just stunning, amazing. So he says here in verse 6, the Lord says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Uh, the reason this is amazing is because there's this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 17, that, that uses a lot of the terminology that we have here in Exodus 17. So let me read to you Deuteronomy 19, verse 17. It says, uh, Then both parties to the dispute, and there's our word that's translated quarrel, both, the, both parties to this dispute, this, this lawsuit, shall appear before Yahweh. Now, that's the language that we just saw in verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you. Both parties to the dispute shall appear before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. And the Lord is about to instruct Moses to take or, or to do this in, 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 verses, uh, in verse 6 in the sight of the elders of Israel. So we've got a dispute, we've got somebody standing before, we've got the, the legal authorities, and what's happening in this scene that is so remarkable in Exodus 17 verse 6 is that the Lord is putting himself in the place of the guilty. The Lord is, the Lord is saying, okay, you're entering into a lawsuit, I'm the one who's on trial. Put me on trial. And I will stand before you, you know, in that verse in Deuteronomy, you bring the parties to the dispute before the Lord, but here the Lord puts himself before Moses in the sight of the elders of Israel. And then he instructs him there in verse 6, having said, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. There is no way for Moses, if the Lord is standing before him there on the rock, there is no way for Moses to strike the rock and not in, strike through the Lord. So it's as though the Lord is putting himself in the place of the guilty and being struck in this circumstance. And water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And, and it, it's, it's this enacted kind of judgment scene whereby through the striking of the Lord, the needs of the people are met. It, it's, it's really amazing. And, and the reason that we read Deuteronomy 32 earlier in the service, uh, Tom and his wife had a little uh, thing going on whether Psalm 95 would be the reading. That could have been the reading. But I wanted to read Deuteronomy 32 because of the way that there are all these references in that passage to the Lord being Israel's rock. Did you hear that? Over and over again in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord is identified with the rock. The rock whose work is perfect and, and you know, all these statements. And then we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which speaks of how they drank from the rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Well, where does that come from? Uh, I think 
that it comes from the teaching of the Lord Jesus, who had said to the Samaritan woman on, on that occasion when uh, he, he's in, in, entering into this dialogue with her, and he says to her, if you had known the gift of God and who it is that speaks with you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then a little bit later in John's gospel, in John 7, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And, and as the scripture says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But I would suggest to you that Jesus is presenting himself as the fulfillment of episodes like this. And then in John's gospel, John 19, John has the account where they're intending to break the legs of the Lord Jesus. And they come to him to break his legs, but he's already dead. And so instead they pierce him and, and water and blood flows out of him. And, and, and I think it, that those who, who connect that blood and water flowing from Christ after he struck in, in John 19 with this passage, they're doing it right. That, that is a correct, I think John means to evoke uh, Christ as the fulfillment of the striking of the rock and the provision for the needs of the people. So it's, it's, a, it's a really an amazing passage. And um, I think the, the overarching lesson that is taught to us here is a statement that Luke makes when he's introducing the parable of the pers persistent widow in Luke 18.1. It says, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I think that NIV 84 rendered it that they should always pray and never give up. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but... That, that's right. Always pray and not lose heart. So we want to believe. We want to pray. We want to remember. Look at verse 7. He called the name of the place Massah. Uh, Massah is related to the word for testing. And Meribah. Meribah is related to the word for quarreling or, or contention or something like that. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So they named the place, you know, testing and quarreling or something like that, in order to remember. I think the point is, don't test the Lord. Don't enter into a, a dispute with Moses and with the Lord. Believe. Call on the name of the Lord. Remember. God will preserve you in the same way he saved you. You know, you, you may be here this morning and you're considering Christianity, you're exploring it. There's this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, where it's as though Isaiah holds out the goodness of what God offers to his people. And, and it's, it's an invitation. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And, and it's, it's almost as though the Lord Jesus is riffing off this kind of idea in John 6 when he says, if anyone is thirsty, John 6, 35, let him come to me and drink. 
That, I'm sorry, that's John 7, 37. John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And we would appeal to anyone who's here and maybe not identifying as a believer or maybe thinking about whether or not you're going to be a believer, come drink the waters. Come to the waters. Come buy wine and milk and eat the richest fare. So that's verses 1 through 7, water from the rock. In verses 8 through 16, we have this second account. And it's, it's really interesting the way that these two accounts are, are interconnected. So in verse 1, they camped at Rephidim. In verse 8, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And over in Deuteronomy, Moses tells us a little bit more about this episode. In Deuteronomy 25, he says this about Amalek in verses 17 through 19. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, Moses writes, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So what the Amalekites did on this occasion was particularly disdainful. Uh, It's as though Israel, you know, they've got this huge convoy of people and the stragglers, that's who Amalek is picking off. That's who they're attacking and plundering and marauding. Uh, These Amalekites, all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, they were among those who came and plundered Sodom, you know, and carried Lot off captive. Uh, There's also an Amalek who's named in the genealogy of Esau. So there are no good associations with this people, the Amalekites. And and we don't know exactly who they were, but they're, they're not... They're not um, upstanding, you know, moral people who believe in just war theory. These are are like pirates, uh, and they don't do anything good. (laughs) Verse 9, so we got this problem with the Amalekites. Verses 9 and 10, Moses is going to give some instructions, and his his instructions to Joshua are, are again interesting. Verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men... And go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Again, the staff comes into play. And, And I think, again, the point is the same staff that Moses used when he... When he struck the Nile, it was turned into a snake. And that, that, that they used to, to work the plagues on Egypt, the same staff that he struck the Nile with, this is the staff that's going to be raised against Amalek. Meaning, I think, the power of God that brought Israel out of Egypt is the power of God that is going to be visited against the Amalekites on this, occasions, on this occasion. Verse 10, so Joshua did, as Moses told him. And fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now here in verses 11 and 12, we see the way that that Moses and Aaron and Hur will persevere in faith and hope. And and it's interesting 
In Moses, you've got the prophetic figure. In Aaron, you obviously have Israel's high priest. And this guy, Hur, he's from the line of Judah, the line from which the kings will come. So it's almost as though there on the hilltop, Moses and Aaron and Hur uh, present Israel with this uh, prophet, priest, and king triad there on the, on the hilltop. And we're told in verse 11, uh, before I go on, let me just observe about verses 8 through 10, that this is a believing response on Moses' part, isn't it? Moses, he, he, he's got this problem, and this time he doesn't first call on the name of the Lord. He says, all right, Joshua, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to go up there with the staff, and the Lord is going to enact his power against our enemies on our behalf. Okay, so verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, almost like that stool that I was sitting on a few weeks ago. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. Now, we don't know whether uh, Moses is holding the staff up with, with one hand and maybe the other hand is just raised to the heavens, or maybe he's got the staff with both hands and he's holding it up this way. And the reason I mention this is because of what's going to be said later in the passage. Verse 15, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. It's almost as though perhaps Moses is holding the staff up like a banner. And, and this word that's translated banner is used to refer to things like a standard or a signal. In fact, it's the word used when, um, when they're instructed over in Numbers 21 to take a bronze serpent and put it on a this, this is the term, on a pole or on a standard or something like this. And so it may be that Moses was raising the staff like a battle standard for the Israelites to see and, and rally around and fight for. Uh, whatever the case, I think it's also not just a, a banner that he's holding up. I think there's also a connotation of prayer. And this too comes from verse 16 where he says, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. So I think that reference to the hand upon the throne of the Lord points to Moses' raised hands with this staff like a banner with Moses, you know, appealing to the Lord, putting his hands on the throne of the Lord, and, and then the Lord's power being visited on behalf of Israel. And this is why, believe, verses 8 through 10, pray, verses 11 and 12. And then, and then they get victory, verse 13. Uh, let me read the rest of verse 12. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And it's interesting that even Moses couldn't do this alone. Moses, I think we see here in verses 11 and 12 an example of Moses persevering in faith and prayer, but he can't do it alone. And, and every one of us, this is why it is so good to be engaged in the life of the church. None of us can do this alone. We need one another. And, and I would encourage you to plug in to the extent that you're able, to the extent that your, your, your life and your circumstances allow 
invest. The more plugged in you are, the more people are going to be able to tell when you're weary and they need to get you a stool or when your hands are heavy and they need to grab your arm and hold it up. But we all need the help of, of one another. So we need, to, we need to believe, we need to pray, and then Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword, verse 13. I think that statement in verse 13 corresponds to the instructions in verses 9 and 10. And then we see the remembrance in verses 14 through 16. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. It's the very first command to write in the whole of the Old Testament. So in a, in a way, that command from the Lord is the impetus for the Pentateuch. You could almost say we have the Bible because the Lord put Israel into this circumstance where Amalek attacked the stragglers, Moses responds in faith and prayer, and then the Lord says, write it, write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua. And before I read on, I mean, the big three applications are believe, pray, remember. But here's a, here's a kind of application of the application. I would encourage you to keep a record of what God does in your life. I would encourage you to get a journal or, or you know, a document on your computer, however you want to do it. But write things down. Write down occasions when the Lord comes through for you, circumstances in your life that you can document of how God met your needs. Write it down and remember it and learn from it. Don't be a believer whose faith doesn't do anything because you don't ever think about your past. You, I mean, the, if the Israelites had thought, well, there's no water here, but good grief. The Lord brought us through the Red Sea on dry ground. We're not going to die in the wilderness. That, that would have been the right way to think about the circumstance. Not, you brought us out here to kill us. And, and we need to remember not only the scriptures, we also should remember what the Lord has done for us. And then, you know, I think what we read here in the rest of verse 14 is an outworking of Genesis 12.3. You remember what the Lord said to Abraham? He says to him, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And Amalek has been dishonoring Abraham by attacking these stragglers of Israel. And so the Lord says here, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So essentially what the Lord is saying is, Amalek is seed of the serpent, and they've dishonored Abraham, and I'm going to crush their heads. And, and, you know, if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever and you're considering Christianity, we got, we got good news for you and we got bad news for you. The good news is if you will turn from your sin, the rock, Christ, has been struck. He was smitten and he was bearing our sin when he was cursed on the tree in place of sinners. And so if you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you can be under God's mercy. You can be like an Israelite on the night of Passover 
in a house where there's lamb's blood on the lintel and the doorpost, and the destroyer will pass right over you, and you will be saved. That's the good news. The bad news, if you continue in your rebellion, you're choosing to identify with the likes of Amalek, and God is going to crush you. God does not take kindly to those who refuse his, his generosity, his love, his kindness. If you continue to resist and you continue to oppose the Lord, you will not prevail. You will not prevail. Don't join with the Amalekites. Don't say to yourself, I will overcome the Almighty. You won't. Verse 15, more remembrance here. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, I've talked about this a little bit, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. You know, it's, it's fascinating uh, the way that, that Moses has put the Bible together. Uh, I think that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, are, are one large chiastic structure that centers on uh, Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. And as you work out from Leviticus 16, there are these corresponding units, one of which we're looking at, because right here we've got water from the rock in Exodus 17, and then a reference to this banner, this, uh, this word that can mean standard or pole. There are corresponding passages. Numbers chapter 20, Moses is going to be instructed to speak to the rock. And, you know, I, I don't know... I don't know what to make of suggestions like this, but apparently um, shepherds in this part of the world where the Israelites are know that the particular kind of rock that they could be dealing with is porous and could often uh, hold water within itself. And if you hit it at the right place, not only does the water that the rock has absorbed come out, but in some cases it can even tap into like a, a subterranean well of water so that if you hit the rock, it, it releases what it has stored up within itself and becomes a kind of well. That could be what's happened here. I don't know. Uh, if that's what happened, the Lord showed Moses exactly where to strike the rock in the right place. And it's been suggested by some scholars that after this happens, you know, maybe as they're moving around in the wilderness, um, they, they begin to interact with others who have also discovered this secret so that on the second occasion... When the Lord tells Moses to speak to the rock, and you remember what he does, he strikes it. This could be unbelief on Moses' part because he's thinking, well, I'm going to have to hit the rock to get the water to come out. And he was told to just speak to, anyway, whatever the case, Numbers 20 stands across from, num from Exodus 17. And then right after that in Numbers 21, you have the episode with the bronze serpent where they put the serpent on the banner or on the, on the standard and so these, these two episodes sort of stand across from one another. And I think this is really interesting because uh, that, that serpent on the banner is almost like the Lord standing on the rock. Here's, here's why I say that. In, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, I think, is developing the idea that the Lord is going to work a new exodus salvation for his people. So his last word, the last words of Isaiah 11 are, There will be a highway 
from Assyria for the remnant that remains for his people as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying, I'm going to bring you back from exile the way that I brought you out of Egypt. And, you know, Isaiah 11 is the passage that's about the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, the Messiah from the line of David. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, Isaiah writes, In that day the root of Jesse, you know, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the future king from David's line, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a, and here's our word, signal. Same term rendered, uh, the Lord is my banner in Exodus 17, verse 15. Same term used to describe the serpent on the pole in Numbers 21. The root of Jesse shall stand as a nace, that's the Hebrew term, a signal for the peoples. And then in verse 12, Isaiah 11, verse 12, he will raise a, a nace, a signal for the people, for the nations, and will assemble the banished of Israel. And you know the Lord Jesus says in John 3, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then he says in John 8, when I am lifted up from the earth, you will know that I am. And then he says in John 12, and this is right after you know, the Greeks have come to see Jesus, and it's like Jesus knows Isaiah 11 is about to be fulfilled. And he says in, in John 12, 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. It's glorious the way that God weaves all these things together. It's glorious the way that people like Isaiah put these things, to, Isaiah and Moses put these things together, and John, and, and of course Jesus was a genius, an interpretive genius. Uh, the last verse of Exodus 17, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. We want to be people of prayer. We want to be people of prayer because we're people who remember. We want to be people who remember because we're people who believe. This is who we want to be. This is how we want to live. We do not want to be like the Israelites who never seem to have learned the lesson. Don't be believers whose faith doesn't do anything. We want to be people who believe that Christ is going to make disciples of all nations through our efforts. We want to be people who believe that the Lord Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell are not going to stand against it. We want to be people who believe whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, God is going to work this for my good. There is no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ. And therefore, the Spirit can bear his fruits in my life and I can walk in faith and hope and love. And I can, I can live not trying to perform in order to earn a standing before God or before other people. No, I'm free to do what God has called me to do in joy, with gratitude. Let's pray together. Father, you are the one who can bring this about. You are the one who can make us people who rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in every circumstance. And so we look to you, and we cry out to you,
And we pray, Lord, that you would take your word and write it on the tablet of our hearts. Make us those who have understood wisdom and found the knowledge of God. Make us those who who do not let steadfast love and faithfulness leave us, but we've bound these things around our necks and made them as frontlets for our eyes. Lord, make it so that these things are who we are because we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray this, that you might receive all the glory. And we ask it in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.